My mother believed and my father believed that if I wanted to be president of the United States, I could be, I could be vice president. This is America. Former Vice President Joe Biden has been elected president of the United States. It is my greatest honor and privilege to have been your president. We will be back in some form. We are still deeply divided. Public health experts warned this was coming unless more was done. And here we are now. Are you proud of what happened here today? Absolutely. Never before in American history has there been an uprising like this. Of the 75 million Americans who voted for Donald Trump, I don't know how many today are feeling, dear God, what was I thinking? But I would wager a lot more are thinking, let's carry on this fight. Character matters. It matters. Tell them the truth matters. The 21st century is going to be the American century. Because we lead not only by the example of our power, but by the power of our example. That is the history of the Carlos Medina, 65 years old, the husband of Bishop O'Connell's housekeeper, was arrested on Monday morning for the murder of the 69-year-old bishop. Now, Marion, you knew this man, and this has to be absolutely shocking for everyone involved. Do we have any idea what the motive behind this was? Charlotte, it's, as you say, this is shocking in a way that I've, I don't think I've seen communities in Los Angeles and in areas I've covered so affected by the death of an individual because he was sort of, he was a bit of a mythic figure in Los Angeles and in South Central Los Angeles in particular. Now, we know, as you mentioned, Carlos Medina, that he was the husband of the housekeeper who had worked for Bishop David O'Connell for over a decade. He did some odd jobs for the bishop around his house. He walked his dog from occasionally. And as I understand it, and again, it's it, not to get out in front of this and to be very careful, there had been issues with this was a troubled individual and there had been issues, domestic issues in the past concerning him. And I think that one of the things that, that the bishop was known for was for helping out people in practical ways that he would give them work if he could or, he you know, he would help them out. And it seemed that by he was employing him as a way of helping him and as a way of helping his family. And this man, Carlos Medina, claimed that he owed him money. And it seems that that was the reason that he went to his house and we believe and the police believe that was why he shot him dead in the early hours of Saturday morning. Now, you know, again, just completely senseless. And one of the ironies was that he moved to Hacienda Heights, which is a very sort of quiet, crime-free suburb in Los Angeles. When he was ordained a bishop back in September 2015, he was basically moved out of the inner city. He had worked in Watts, in Compton, Crenshaw, really in this most toughest and most violent areas for about 40 years. He worked with a lot of the gangs, the gang members. He tried to help to liaise with the police with them as well. Also did a lot of work with homeless, with transients and was hugely involved in helping asylum seekers and migrants. He was, to me, he was, there are two kinds of people in the Catholic Church in America as far as I can see. One would be the Catholic Church of We'd say Bill Barr and Neil Gorsuch and, and, you know, Amy Coney Barrett and the sort of very privileged Catholic elites and who really are, they basically use the Catholicism and the the patriarchy system to try and co-opt it into American life and basically as a way of 
keeping rich white men in charge and using religion and various other things to justify their ideology. So he was at the other end. He was somebody who I think really, from what I knew from him, from what everybody I've spoken to over the last week knew of him, was just an exceptional human being. He was, I think one of the first things to say is he was hilariously funny. He he had the timing and the wit of, I think he'd be the envy of many a person in your profession, Charlotte, to be mm-hmm. quite honest. And he used to, like, it, it's also interesting because market forces kind of apply in religion in America. There's no, no church has a monopoly. You know, in, in Ireland, it was basically the Catholic Church and to a tiny extent, the Church of Ireland for so long. And, and that was it. But in America, people shop around it and you have to basically give them a reason to join your church and to stay in it. And he was in an era when I think churches have emptied out. His sermons, his masses were always packed. Because people would come not just to hear his message, which was always about compassion and and taking care of the least advantaged, but because he was funny as heck. He would, Mm. you know, he had this laconic dry sense of humour. And he would, I remember one time saying about something he had seen, and it was, to the person who stole my antidepressants, I hope you're happy. (laughs) (laughs) And he would repeat this. he He just found it hilarious. And he had all these other things that he would pick up and hear in places and different places. And he just gets such a kick out of them. But as he was, again, one of those people who could get on with anyone. He was so beloved by the gang members. And I met a former gang member outside his house the other night who was there. He brought a balloon and a lit candle. And he said to me, this would never have happened if he was still in Watts. You know, he said, the, the, this, we would have protected him because he was apparently never felt he was ever in any danger for a moment of all the time he was negotiating gang violence and battles between gangs and turf wars. And it was the irony of that he moved to this really quiet suburban district and was required to do so as a result of becoming a bishop. And that was where he was murdered in his bed. And I think that that is just one of the things that, that people... But I mean, in terms of... It's sort of a measure of a life, I think, really, when you talk to people and they can tell you about the impact that he had on their lives. And I spoke to about 20 or 30 people who had gathered outside his house to light candles to say the rosary over like the last week or so. I have very little to do with the Catholic Church, generally speaking. It's not, you know, I mean, I, I absolutely recognise the incredible work that people like Bishop Dave, as he was known, did. And that people like Sister Norma Pimenta, who works on the border and runs the emergency centre in McAllen, that there are some individuals who are just phenomenal in the work that they do. And the way they really do work just to help the least advantaged in the way that religion, I suppose, was supposed to be about. Yeah. And he was very, very liberal. He said to me once that he really believed that if there had been women priests and if priests had been allowed to marry, that the child abuse, all the sexual abuse of children, the cover-ups, the scandal. He said he doesn't think that any of that would have happened or that it certainly wouldn't have happened to the d- degree that really? it did. He said that yeah. to you? Yeah, wow. and he, he was quite open about it. I don't think I was the only person he said yeah, it to. Yeah, but what I mean is he, he did speak openly to journalists about this. Like he knew you were a journalist and he was a big advocate, as you say, for women to be ordained. He must That's have pissed right. off quite a few people, as you say, from oh, the yeah. other end of the spectrum. Yeah, he ab- he absolutely did. It was interesting because 
When the whole child sex abuse scandal broke in Los Angeles and Cardinal Roger Manley was in charge at the time and he hired a PR firm, that was basically his way of dealing with it. And the PR firm said to him, basically, what you need to do is to get out the priests who are basically the Father Daves, as he was at the time, who are doing incredible work and get the focus on them. And Bishop O'Connell was would not play ball. He refused to be used to help, you know, to basically as a as a damage control, as a and as sort of a damage limitation stooge for mm. for the church, and he just wouldn't take he wouldn't take part in it. And he spoke out on the altar in Los Angeles and apologized profusely for the abuse. And at one point, he broke down in tears during a sermon. But he never, and he, I, what appalled him as much was the cover up, the fact that the Catholic Church spent so much money on lawyers and PR people and all this kind of thing to actually try and cover it up rather than to to own up to it. And I think he felt very strongly with that. But he also was very, he really believed that the Catholic Church had to change the definition of family so that they had to welcome gay, gay couples with children. They had to welcome single parents. They had to welcome divorced people that they could no longer just decide that who, you know, that basically that to exclude people on the basis of just the way society had changed and the way that, that the nuclear family concept had changed, that didn't win him any friends amongst the hierarchy. But it was interesting because he was appointed by Pope Francis and he and two other Irish priests were all appointed bishops on the same day. And apparently Pope Francis, when he would talk to the Archbishop of Los Angeles, Louis Gomez, would ask, oh, how are the triplets? How are the triplets doing? And they were always known as the triplets, these three Irish priests who all became bishops on the same day. But he told me that he didn't, not that he didn't like being a bishop, but he was frustrated by the amount of time that he spent just dealing with administration and that he really missed the connection that he had had with, as I said, with all kinds of groups of people, you know, as I said, from gang members to newly released prisoners to immigrants and asylum seekers to the homeless to drug addicts that these are all the people he had worked with for four decades and he no longer had the same level of contact and he seemed to really miss that unbelievably sad this man carlos medina before we leave this story 65 years old as i said is the husband of the housekeeper yeah Uh, where they're absolutely confident this is the culprit there he seems to have just driven over returned home at 2 a.m., was arrested at 8 a.m. They have the SUV on CCTV. There's no doubt it was them and no one else. It's always hard to say until somebody has been charged and indeed convicted. But there seems to be from the police who I spoke to on the scene as well, there seems to be no doubt in their mind that that it, it was Carlos Medina, that it was this man. When they went to his house, there was a standoff for several hours. They found more guns in the house. And it was the neighbours who had alerted the police who had tipped them off. I mean, the fact that the arrest was made so quickly, and in fact, the sheriff of Los Angeles County said that people were so appalled by his death that he said they'd never got such a response in terms of tips and people wanting to help and people, you know. And so it is a tragedy. It's a tragedy that, and an irony that he, as I said, having worked on skates in in such dangerous circumstance for so long that he becomes a bishop and has moved out to the house in the suburbs. And I have to say, it's a really modest house. There was nothing flash about it at all. It wasn't like an Irish bishop's house. Yeah. And then he's murdered there. So, it, And he had just also, I should say, that um, 
when the shootings in Monterey Park happened a month ago. Now, he was one of the first people to go there. He drove over there. It's about a half an hour drive from where he was because he had a lot of parishioners and people he had worked with. And he stayed, I was told by one of the women who had gathered, a woman called Teresa Rael Sebastian, she said that when he arrived at Monterey Park, that he, you know, he he prayed and he stayed with the victims and the families until the early hours of the morning. She said he left when it was bright and then he came back that evening and said mass again with the community. And she had her photograph taken with him and her mother as well, because they said it was really like it, he was known. This like he was somebody who was really beloved by Catholics in Los Angeles and. So she had the picture with her that she had taken with him a couple of weeks earlier and she said she had taken part in the vigil he had held and there she was now outside his house, you know, attending a vigil for him. And it's just, I, I, aside, and the shock and bewilderment of the community, it was really an understandable. I, say, I didn't know him well. I have very little dealings with the Catholic Church, but to me, he was a genuinely exceptional human being. And as I said, so funny with it and so human and so irreverent like just this wicked sense of humor and you know which really belied his lightness i think of spirit sort of belied the work that he did and how difficult that work was you know mm. it, it, so very, very sad uh, yeah I, I think it's it's sort of strangely ironic that so much will be made of this loss and the next story we're about to go to has so much loss, so much loss in it that we've become numb to it. 7,000 civilians have died in military casualties of 100,000. The economy and the critical infrastructure devastated. Key resources, of course, are now in Russian control, but we are one year on in this full-scale invasion of Ukraine that President Putin assumed would be over in days when he launched it. And he wasn't alone, Marion. We didn't think it would last that long either. And a lot no. of the press were the same. Is uh, Can you give us a sense of where America stands right now in terms of its involvement and the attitude towards this conflict that doesn't look close to ending? I think that this a year in, it's really... At, the, I think, a pretty precarious point for Joe Biden, of course, went to Kiev, which I think was a really important thing to do and to appear there. And it was also the subtext was to, to Putin, you know, a year ago, you thought you'd be running this city and a year later, you're not here and we're here and we're walking around with the president of Ukraine. And, you know, it, but but the suffering, as you say, that the people of Ukraine have been through the bloodshed, the destruction and it just shows no sign of ending and it shows of ending a sign that it may be ratcheting up now. And I think that the, some astonishing things have happened and, and that, that really full credit to Joe Biden and full credit to the European leaders and to NATO as well in the way that they have hung together, in the way that they have enforced sanctions, in the way they have presented a really united front. But I, the longer this goes on, I think certainly in the States, the harder it may be to keep that. I don't know if you've seen any of the coverage in the last week following this the derailment of the train in East Palestine in, near Ohio, where it basically derailed and a lot of toxic fumes were burnt off and people got sick and fish were dying. And the Republicans, who the irony, they have never, I never before heard Republicans spread about the environment 
or about ecological damage. But suddenly they were all jumping up and down saying, how dare, well, not all, but, you know, the, yeah. the usual suspects. How dare Joe Biden go to Kiev? Why isn't he at home? Why isn't he in East Palestine? And it's just, there, there seems to be a resentment of him giving both his time and American money to this defense of democracy, which is so much of a much bigger picture. And the irrelevance and the stupidity of trying to compare a toxic spill, yes, which is very serious, in, in a small town in America with the cataclysmic devastation that's going on in Ukraine and, and the, you know, the battle for democracy that, that's going on there. That's, but it that's is a move, isn't it? Isn't it such a reflection of the move towards local that we see in politics across yeah. all of the world? That it's like, well, what about our community? We don't, you know, this this is happening in Dublin right now in relation to refugees and, inverted commas, the foreigners coming in. The reason why they're there is not important to people. Yeah. It's, you know, what about my front yard is the... It seems to be the order of the day across the world in terms of politics. Is Joe Biden going to pay the price for this kind of wider, bigger picture, historical legacy that he has in his head? Well, you know, I don't know. I mean, at the moment, we don't even know if he's running again, although it seems likely. But I think that Joe Biden is very aware of his legacy. And, and yeah. he's, he's a president who has studied the legacies of other mm-hmm. presidents, particularly Roosevelt and, you know, other oh, presidents. Yeah. It's so all over him. He, it's, yeah, and he, I think that he's willing to make that stand. I think that he, he realizes that this really, more than anything else, is going to be the defining issue of his presidency. And if he doesn't succeed at this, then really the other, the legislative successes, the COVID, all that stuff isn't really going to matter because democracy is under such threat, not just in Ukraine, but in America as well, to the point where there are and it's really interesting to see how the Republicans are split on this because you have the old school traditional Republicans who really wanted America to be the world leader and that it used strength and the Ronald Reagan peace through strength, et cetera, et cetera. And then you have a, quite a large number of Republicans who are, as he said, berating the fact that a really a relatively small amount of American money in, 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 in terms of the American economy you know, thirty forty million do- billion dollars on military spending is nothing. It's a drop in the bucket. That's really all it is. But there's also in some quarters of the Republican Party, there's a much more of an alignment with Putin. They see Putin as being much more their kind of guy than Zelensky. They see a strong man, an authoritarian figure, who is against wokeism, as they would have it, who believes in allowing people to be armed, who is anti-gay, who's anti you know, a lot of progressive liberal ideas. It was totally opposed to them. And they see themselves as being much more aligned with Putin. And they're thinking, well, why are we helping this other guy? And that is a really significant part of the Republican Party is now thinking that way. And it just shows how far the Republican Party has strayed from where it saw itself and where it saw its place in America. It really only going back as far as I would say, even the George W. Bush presidency, yeah, absolutely. which was terribly flawed and terribly wrong in so many ways but but, but the same was question this, was yeah. faced by that administration in relation to Iraq how does this end that's the question what is yeah. the sense you get around that or I mean you've read way more on this than me this week uh, I'm burrowed down in a bunch of other stuff and that's half the reason we come to you Marion on a Friday 
is that we don't have time to read everything around this. But the question of how does it end? I mean, this is increasingly the question is, sure, you can invest, you can send all this. But is there an exit strategy? Is there a plan here? What what do you envision as the ending of this conflict? Well, it sort of depends on who you speak to. There have been several briefings from various people in the National Security Council, Department of State, Defence, etc. in the last couple of weeks. It's not entirely clear, but it is clear. One thing that they all seem to be agreed on is that how this ends is that Putin gets out of Ukraine. That's it. Now, there are details within that, as in when you ask about Crimea, and does that mean that, you know, that America will support him being pushed out of Crimea as well and the Donbass region, the two eastern provinces that Putin has has basically annexed and declared that, you know, they are part of Russia now to all intents and purposes. And it that bit isn't that all that clear. Now, it is, as I say, it's clear that Biden fully intends to support Ukraine militarily, financially, etc., to get Putin out of Ukraine to push him back into Russia. But it's unclear even if Zelensky is determined to get all of, of Ukraine back, including Crimea, or if he would be willing to, say, leave Crimea as part of Russia and maybe even the Donbass region as well. So that is, I think, where the picture becomes muddy. Now, right. I, I, in a way, you see, there's also, and I know I've spoken about this before, and I know it sounds cynical, but to me, there's also a sub-agenda here where it suits American purposes to have Putin bogged down in Ukraine, to have him hemorrhaging money and troops and military equipment because Russia is becoming weaker every day. And almost in a way, the longer this war goes on, the weaker Russia will be. And to me, I find the drip feeding to Zelensky of what he needs, the drip feeding of armor, the drip feeding of money, the drip feeding of tanks. And it's, 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 that is not how the war is going to be won. Now, it seems at this stage in America, even though they had been saying adamantly no fighter jets and no fighter jets for the same reasons, which don't hold us with the Abrams tanks. When we spoke about the Abrams tanks, when America had refused to give them these tanks, had refused, refused on the basis that, oh, they were too complicated. They wouldn't know how to operate them. And yet, it, it seemed they had no problem selling thousands of them to the Saudis, which they were perfectly able to operate. And they were able to go into Yemen and crush the Houthis using those tanks. They sold a thousand to the Egyptians as well. They never worried about whether or not they'd be able to figure out how to operate them. Yeah. So it didn't really hold water. And as well, as we've said before, Charlotte, America has over 4,000 of these tanks lying around, you know, in various places. 31 tanks is not a lot. It's not a lot out of 4,000. It's kind of minimal. And so this is where I think that America and the EU and the Western allies, they're going to have to step up more because I think for this war to be turned around, there's no question that Zelensky can't keep doing it on a shoestring, that he does need more equipment and he does need more support militarily. I think I'm going to have to disagree with you there, Marion, because the spectre of nuclear weapons being used here has hung over this conflict since the very start. I mean, I remember Putin announcing the invasion and I have the quote in front of me here that he said that anybody that tried to interfere would face consequences such as you have never seen in your entire history. 
And there was this threat of a dirty bomb being used. It seemed like there was intel in October that Kiev was ready to detonate a radioactive dirty bomb in Ukraine. It turned out not to be true. But this is the stick that's behind the back of Putin, right? The calls to ramp things up, there's always this fear behind it that this could produce this kind of an action from Putin. Is that still there? Is that still being discussed that, well, we we can't do that in case of this? Yeah, I you know, it is. And obviously it's something that the whole series, that something will reach a tipping point that you would, that some equipment or something would happen where America could get sucked in that way and the West. And of course, that is a very real risk. But I mean, people who know an awful lot more than I do about this, smart guys like Leon Panetta, who was a former CIA advisor to Obama, who worked as Clinton's chief of staff, who really knows his way around politics. He has been very up to the forefront saying, you know, America needs to do more if we really want, if we're serious about Ukraine winning in this, and we have to support them. We have to support their courage, their tenacity, and their fearlessness. And the same thing has been said by several pretty moderate military figures that basically, you may say half a loaf is better than no bread, but in this situation that really more needs to be done, more equipment needs to be supplied because without it, Russia is going to eventually win. That, you know, if if it comes down to who will wait this out, then Russia will probably wait it out. Russia has an advantage in that. And I think there's also the expectation that the Western allies will get tired of this after a while, that America, as it does, will talk a big talk, but will then just get tired or bored or to become too expensive And I think that, in a way, Putin is probably holding on in the expectation that any of the above might happen. And there is a risk, of course, giving fighter jets, but there's a risk in giving tanks. There's a risk in giving any military assistance. The nuclear war thing, again, people here that I've spoken to, nobody can tell. This is an unknown. And as you say, like initially, nobody thought, including me, that Putin would invade because they thought, well, what has he got to gain from it? He's already got everything that he would get, as in, you know, soaring oil prices and respect in the world, and he was being feared again and, oh dear. But I don't know, because if America and the West just keeps things as they are, as I say, it it really is only a matter of time before Russia prevails. There there, There just isn't enough equipment going in to really turn this around at the moment. And if they do provide substantially more more military equipment, including fighter planes, which seems to be what Zelensky really thinks is needed, I don't, who knows what the military analysts think of that, then uh, th- there is the risk of escalation, but it's already escalated. And I think if the nuclear threat, look, you know, it's one of those things that is Putin bluffing, we don't. That we don't want to find out, basically. Mm. We don't want to find out. We don't want to be at that situation. But I'm not sure that that refusing equipment, America is already involved. Europe is already involved. They're already supplying them. I'm not sure at what point there's a tipping point in terms of financial and military aid where Putin would say, right, that's it now. That's it. Well, you know, I've had enough. Well, but that is what conflict is composed yeah. of. Like mm-hmm. from the study I've done on this back, in, I know it's 20 years ago, doing international relations in UCD. It, it's, it's the straw that breaks the camel's back. That's that. I can't stand no more. And it can be something very small. 
it can be something like one death in a location under a circumstances yep. that produces a one rage. One stray missile. It's, yeah. it's still yeah. one man with a button. But I wondered, and my final question on this, Marion, before we leave it, is about tipping points again. You said there's no point at which the cost, there's no, but there must be a point at which the time, what kind of time scale do you think does this have to reach where people are like, no, enough is enough. This is another Vietnam. We're now just in here forever. Do you think there is such a point? Do you, do you, could you make a prediction on something like that? Well, I know that in terms of civil wars and in terms, which this is not, of course, but in terms of wars tend to last for a decade. You know, I mean, that that is... I remember doing work on this when I was working in Somalia, where you were looking at the, you know, the prognosis of conflicts. And they tend to last for a lot longer than people ever think getting in. I suppose Afghanistan, 20 years, you know, Iraq, what what was that? Was it 10 years or thereabouts? Mm. And then you know, the war in Syria, the civil war is still going on there, which started in 2011. And these wars don't... and. Russia seems to dig its heels in as it did in Syria and as it does, you know, and get in and seem willing to outlast. But Russia, of course, also got pushed out of Afghanistan in the 80s again after a long time. So I don't know that this, there's any end in sight, I think, is is one of the real problems here. That if this is just a matter of Ukraine hanging on and hanging on and pushing back and pushing back and... Russia just basically bombing rubble at a certain point. You know, at what point even do the Ukrainian people lose their resolve and their morale and their will to keep fighting? I don't think anyone knows where this ends. I really don't or how it ends. Well, we know that there's a presidential election on the horizon. And my prediction is that we could see a pullout within the year in terms of US support. That's my feeling that there's so much anger in from what I can read, Marion, that things like this Palestine oil spill do have an impact on public opinion. Michael Regan, not the one that I have in my house, the head of the US Environmental Protection Agency. Uh What a funny coincidence that is. Got a first hand look on, on Thursday at the toll left by this freight train that derailed, as Marion mentioned earlier. Toxic chemicals spilled everywhere. They're burned off, leaving this stench of fresh paint, people are saying, that's lasted for nearly two weeks. Well, yeah, the the train crashed on February 3rd. Now, it has to be said, the EPA and indeed the Transport Department have really been slow off the mark with this. It shouldn't have taken Michael Regan, not Mikey, two nearly two weeks to get there to inspect the damage it shouldn't have you know and then pete Buttigieg and the i get it that this is seen as an environmental issue rather than a transport issue but it doesn't matter you can send people there you need to show that you're taking this seriously and you know biden the irony that trump is rocking up there too i mean i've never heard so many republicans in my life express as i said concern about you know environmental issues it's suddenly they've all yeah, you know, other than the windmills, this is the first time indeed. Trump has taken an interest um, in... Uh, and suddenly they're all hightailing it up to East Palestine and expression, expressing concern and outrage at this spill. Now, I, I again, the EPA director, I don't think, yes, he's talking about holding Suffolk Northern accountable. And, you know, they, they I spoke with the, one of their um, press people last week, and initially it seems that they had offered $25,000 
to the town, which is 5,000 people. And that works out, of course, as we know, at about five pounds each, five dollars each. And then it, it, after the furore that that caused, it, it, they said, no, 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 that was only a quick sort of putting something in the pot. And they're now offering at $1.5 million apparently in damages. And they've offered another million that they're putting into a charitable trust or whatever. But the fact is, it doesn't undo the damage. And the problem with this is there, you know, there have been a thousand derailments in the last year in America. What? Like, yes, a, a small one, a several small where, they are, where they've been re readied. But the problem is that so many toxic materials in America, so many chemicals, almost all of them, in fact, are carried by train. And you know, this was an accident that was literally waiting to happen. There was another one in Detroit, outside Detroit, last week, now that carrying more chemicals. There wasn't a spill, that there wasn't damage done to the, the carriage. But again, it was another derailment. And this is, it's lethal and more needs to be done. And it is up to the Department of Transport and it is up to the EPA to introduce far more stringent regulations. And But then again, they have to be passed in Congress. And will the Republicans, for all of their, you know, outrage or professed outrage about, about the spill in East Palestine, will they actually agree to pass legislation that, that will make things more difficult for the railroad companies who are cutting costs? I mean, Trump deregulated everything when he when he became president, effectively. Uh, so it becomes a know, lightning it, rod, though, doesn't it? This yeah, kind of a yeah. situation, because it's like, well, while Joe is over there, we're thinking about you guys on the ground. Yes. And, you know, yeah. it's all all of this stuff's connected. Of course, this is always the thing that's so interesting with these conversations with you, Marion. It's like this does impact on public opinion of what Joe is doing over there and how he regards the everyday American, the work in Joe, Joe Sixpack, as he used to be called. And as you say, two weeks, it's just not good enough, is it? No, it's not good enough. And I, I, said, I think they dropped the ball. I think the White House comms people dropped the ball. I think certainly EPA and transport dropped the ball as well. They were not they're quick enough. They didn't take it seriously enough soon enough. And I, I think that's an unforgivable error. It's it's really inexcusable because they should know better. But I do think, though, in terms of separating it out, I think there are enough Americans who think that Joe Biden is doing the right thing with Ukraine. I think there are enough Americans who think that, yes, America is leading again. It's a moral leader in the world stage again. And we have managed to unify the allies around us. We have managed to strengthen NATO. We've managed to reverse so many things that Trump did, basically. I mean, it, you know, it. But Marion, people are afraid to drink the water. People are afraid to give water to their dogs. They're afraid to have a shower. I mean, that, yeah, there yeah. might be a lot of people in New York who are like, yeah, we got, of course, we've got to defend peace over here. But like when there's people that aren't able to drink their water or being told by the EPA, yeah, I know it smells of paint, but, you know, you can still drink it. Like he's walking by a, a river going, it's still good. It's still good. It's still drinkable. Yeah, as, as there are dead fish rotting yeah. on the sides of it. Yeah. You know, it's 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 not acceptable. But in a, some, in a way as well, the governor of Ohio, Mike DeWine, who is a decent, moderate, well, relatively moderate Republican governor, has also mishandled this. And politics is local in these situations. This is a town of less than 5,000 people. I don't think you can expect to have the whole of the White House and the administration up there are engaged to that degree. I don't think they expect it. I think that they do expect that this railroad company will be held accountable. But I think, and the thing is, and this is not to sound flip, Charles, all over America, people can't drink water. 
There wow. are whole towns in in um, America that have New no York. water. Yeah. That where it's it's being you know, we saw the children in Flint, Michigan, who were poisoned by lead in the pipes for years, yep. so who were sickened and poisoned and suffered brain damage. So this is not like it's the first time this has happened. This is not even as though we know that the water in East Palestine, although it's fairly pretty toxic, that we don't know there's worse quality water being consumed elsewhere in the States and has been on an ongoing basis. I mean, there, there are places out in, in Arizona and California and Nevada where the wells, uh, you know, have been completely poisoned by runoffs from chemicals from big farms and by drought and where, where, as I say, people are relying on water being trucked in to their communities on, you know, on a, a daily and weekly basis. The only other place I ever saw that was in, in Syria and in Somalia. Two questions real quick. They're saying that the EPA can fine Norfolk Southern, the company, $70,000 yeah, $70, a day, day yeah. if they fall short in cleaning it up. But how the hell do you clean it up and how long does it take? And as well, I'm sorry, $70 a day is, is really inadequate. Because, you know, for yeah. a big company, a big company like that, that's not like, is that yeah. half, a, half a million a week? Yeah. You know, it's, it's ridiculous. It's nothing. It's nothing. And yeah, how do they clean it up? That is a really good question. I mean, they obviously there are ways that you can, you know, absorb pollutants and you can you can do you can treat the water. But but this is a river. This is a river yeah. with tributaries and streams, and it's all been you know a huge extent of the river has been poisoned. So I don't know is the honest answer how how they clean it up. They've burnt off most of the. It was uh, vinyl chloride. They've burnt off all of that now. I think the five cars of vinyl chloride, but it went into the air, it went into the elements, it, come, it falls back down. I mean, it's this crazy. is going to be a polluted area for, I think, quite some time to come. And I don't know how they will be able to decide, how they will be able to gauge, okay, now you've done enough to clean up, now it's clean. How do you measure that? Yeah, I, it I does sound like just chat, doesn't it? It sounds like a good press yeah. release, $70,000 yeah. a day. But... The seven, you said a thousand derailments a year. There's yeah. terribly toxic chemicals being transported by train. Yeah. First of all, Three mile long how, how in the name of God is that what they regard as safe transport for this stuff? And how are there that many derailments? Do we know anything about how this happened? Clearly, the, the carriage is too heavy to be supported by the tracks. But was there anything else to suggest why this happened or why 1,000 derailments is OK by US standards? I think that largely because most of these derailments are very minor, very inconsequential. They're quickly rectified. You know, it, it, it's like even if it's a, a, a train going onto a side, you know, a, a side railing that when it shouldn't, that counts as a derailment. But I think that as well, the, the number of trains that go all over the states every day and the volume. The main problem, and this is what we spoke about, the the train strike last December when Joe Biden stepped in and intervened and, and made it illegal for the, for the railroad workers to strike. One of their big problems was they said, these trains are two miles long, three miles long, some of them. You have one person at one end um, and you have an engineer at the other end. And if anything goes wrong, it's entirely possible they will have to walk three miles, possibly in the middle of the night, possibly in freezing snow, just to get to where the problem is. And they were saying that from a safety perspective, this is crazy because what the railroad unions, what the railroads have done, the companies have done is they've basically slashed workers and slashed them. And they have this precision, I think it's called precision scheduling, where, you know, it, it, it's they're working 
with the bare minimum number of workers, like two people on a train that's three miles long, it's almost laughable. Wow. That, well, that's, that's what you have. We need to round up the news from around America because we're making this full episode available to everyone on all the free feeds and Patreon so that you can get a taste of what it's like to have double size episodes of Irishman in America <laughs> in your stream every Friday. That's what we do. There's a 30 minute episode available for free, but you can come over to patreon.com forward slash Irishman abroad and hear the whole thing every Friday. And as 2024 ramps up and feels like the race has already begun, you'll need that in your life. But let's get our roundup of what's been happening in America this week. I've been watching the uh, Murdoch uh, Netflix show straight away, yes. Marion, straight into it. Gave me a, Ripped a, from the headline. Well, God, it didn't take them long. Didn't take them long. This week, what is the latest on this really bizarre trial? This is, I think, going to just run and run at the moment. I, the, I, I'm not really... It's clear, that, it's clear that, that he is guilty. He is allowed, you know, he's a lawyer. He is allowed to take the stand in his own defence. There, there's no reason why he can't in any legal way, although it does seem like a lot of arrogance because there's, the evidence against him is so overwhelming. But he's probably one of these people who believes that he held such a powerful position in South Carolina society. His family were so influential, he probably believes that he can persuade a jury that he's innocent. And, you know, notwithstanding the huge amount of evidence that is mounted up, up against him. Yeah. yeah, and and I, you know, it's possible he thinks he has nothing to lose here. That you know, the, the evidence as it stands is pretty damning. That maybe he feels the only chance he has if is if he gets up and he makes his pitch to the jury. As I said, in in, in the belief that because his family is has such a had such a, a reputation um, in the town as as these sort of legal luminaries as this really powerful family that that. There would be an element of some kind of willingness to believe him. Uh, it, it I definitely don't ties it. in with the ego, right? The, the it, it certainly does, and and of course his son um, is also testifying at the trial. And this is the son who who um, Buster Murdoch. It was believed that that um, his brother, his the, the brother Paul Murdoch, who who was who was shot by his father. Who well, we don't know who was allegedly shot by Alex Murdoch and Alex Murdoch is currently on trial for his murder as well as his wife's murder. There there were a lot of um, issues with these two sons apparently and one of the reasons that, that uh, Paul Murdoch got into trouble uh, several times in his life um, was because um, of, of his very, very volatile temper and his propensity for drinking and a belief in, in some quarters that this um, son Buster Murdoch may have been gay and and he his brother went around beating people up and you know beating people up who who he believed were either spreading the rumor or who may potentially have been gay and you know th this was a troubled family that got away with far too much for far too long Absolutely. And, and it's just if you, you know, want to get a sense of it head to netflix and that'll be my recommendation of the week because the first episode i consumed last night was just like it's just head spinning stuff um let's get straight to the next story bizarre revelations out of georgia who knew that emily course a thir 30 year old yeah. woman who has described herself as between a customer service jobs 
said she didn't vote in the 2020 presidential election. Who knew that she could play such a pivotal role in the potential indictment of a former president? What do you make of all this, Mary? Well, you know, I think, first of all, I was really uncomfortable with that interview that she did with NBC. I'm not sure if you saw it. I'm not sure if, if the gang out there saw it. But she really had no business um, doing that interview, in my view, and she had no business being asked those questions because you have to give everyone due process. And I do not think that going on TV in the way that she did and speaking about the, the it's meant to be a secret procedure. What's mm. meant to happen there is they hand a report to Fannie Willis, to us handled this incredibly well, the district attorney of Fulton County, and she will then decide whether or not to give it to a, a regular grand jury who will then decide whether or not to indict. The special grand jury doesn't get um, to make that decision. Uh, they give a recommendations, a series of recommendations, and they're meant to be secret. Now, it seems very clear from what Emily Kors has said that uh, it, it, it certainly seems like Donald Trump will be, they are recommending very strongly that he will be indicted. That came across, I think, loud and clear But in her sort of slightly coy when she was saying, well, you know, there'll be no plot twists and there, et cetera, et cetera. And also the fact that several people apparently they believe should be indicted and that several, they also believe several people lied to them. Um, I think there's a time for all this to come out. I'm not sure that it's on on um, NBC and and with the the jury for woman. I, I I think that it showed a certain naivety in her part. I think that naivety was exploited. Well, uh, that's about all we have time for this week. Uh, we didn't get to Rhonda Sansa's visit to New York. Indeed, uh, where sticking he's going to be if Tom and Trump's eye. Yeah, in a big way. we'll yeah. we'll look forward to that. Yeah. Maybe we need to do a Rhonda Santos. Uh, episode next week specifically on the man who would be king he has not gained a nickname in new york street basketball that's how you become a legend is that once you've earned a nickname well he hasn't (laughs) earned a nickname properly not yet Uh, maybe we'll put it out there to the listeners maybe you can come up with the ronda santos nickname ronda sanctimonious is the best that donald has at the moment it's not really sticking if you have a good one meatball ron i think is another one that hasn't really stuck either (laughs) so anyone can do better yeah Podcast at gmail.com is the place to email email us in and you could win uh, some Irish Man Abroad goodies Marion thank you so much for taking the time to do this and squeezing it into your schedule and we will talk to you next week Aoife Horan is on sound Tina and Mikey make it all possible thank you all for tuning in and come over to patreon.com and enjoy the full Steve Coogan interview this Sunday terrific I'm looking forward to it you have the cameras rolling? This is America. A lot of people who would probably consider themselves liberal have done very well financially under the Donald Trump four years. You encouraged espionage against our people. You condemn any interference by Russia in the American election. By Russia or anybody else. Russia, please, if you can, get us Hillary Clinton's emails. Please, Russia, please. To renew America, we must revitalize our democracy.